Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Wellness Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Thomas. It has been a long while since I've done a podcast, and quite honestly, like many of you, I haven't known what to say or do the last 20 months. At the beginning of this current situation, tons of content was circulating, and like many of you, I was following along, learning, taking it all in, employing discernment skills and trying to figure out how I could participate in a meaningful way. Like most of us, I was gripped and I just wanted this to get better. I wanted multiple things to be prioritized at the same time. Protection for the most vulnerable can mean different things for different people. Any mom out there listening knows that, yep, we are experts at holding up multiple competing interests at the same time. High-risk adults needed different things than children and their caregivers who were, who are sometimes high-risk adults. This is no simple task to accomplish, so from a public health standpoint, I definitely don't want to oversimplify anything or suggest that I have any answers. I do have to say, though, the strategies we've employed have not necessarily been effective at mitigating the virus and have oftentimes been very crushing for many people mothers, their children, teachers, frontline workers, the poor, and the working class all seem to be somewhat collateral damage in this efforts. As we progressed along, I was following quite a few quiet, competent, humble scientists on the sidelines who were raising a hand and speaking up about the significance diet and lifestyle play in all this. I started to feel uneasy when simple foundational health information was never mentioned. 20 months in and nothing about hydration, sleep, or getting sunlight as it relates. Yikes. Some of the simple, low to no cost supportive measures were just what we needed to hear to remind us that we actually are all in this together. To me, it would have made the situation look more unifying and a little more trustworthy. Access to all information hasn't been balanced or even complete. I don't agree with everything everyone says, but like many of you, I'm naturally curious and I feel it's important for everyone to hear all the things we need to hear. That's how our thinking evolves. That's how science evolves. That's how this country is designed to work. I have not been impressed with the increasing toxicity of the extreme left anymore than I've ever been impressed with the toxicity of the extreme right. Where did middle ground go? My guess is it's probably in Mark Zuckerberg's back pocket somehow, but that's another topic. In light of all this, I am determined to remind us that what we are going through right now is not us against each other. It's us against this profit over people business model that we just can't seem to let go of in this country and appears to be going global. This is also known as the status quo. And I am crystal clear about the fact that you can only live outside the laws of nature for so long before something like the C word comes along and kicks us all in the ass. The paradigm of over extraction without consequences just came full circle. And here we are. The health of the planet is the health of the people. Returning to life 
in the system of natural cycles on a local scale is the people's movement. The best kept secret in all this, your health is in your hands. You cannot outsource your thinking to anyone else. You can get advice, you can get more information, but ultimately you are the boss. The other best kept secret in all this, soil health creates the foods that contain the nutrients that create real health and resilience against all illnesses. The science is trickling out on what functional physicians and scientists have been saying this whole time. Diet and lifestyle matter. Moreover, where and how our food is grown is both foundational in how the nutrient-dense food is created, but is also home to the biodiverse landscapes where the carbon in the atmosphere is sequestered. This is the carbon cycle. We are part of it, and we can affect change on this level. Monocultures of soy, corn, and wheat are not the way. We don't need new solutions. We don't need to adopt new dietary strategies that eliminate a major source of nutrition for the world's population. We need to look to our indigenous communities and our ancestors for solutions that are already working. We need to make those ideas central. We need to decide to come back together. We need to stake our claim and our common vested interest. I don't know how we're gonna do this if we don't do this together. And that means that we have to talk to each other and that means that we might not agree, but we've got to figure it out again. Now, I know I've probably already lost some of you. The media has slanted the information around these topics so hard that we can't even have a conversation. They've layered shame and ridicule into healthcare and dietary decisions. That works out awesome for the corporations. However, as a woman whose sole purpose in business is to support you being the best, most powerful version of yourself, I am not here for any of that. We've allowed bad motivations to hang morality on issues where it doesn't belong. And then I have to bring up our economic system. Who has access to good food and good care and who doesn't? Maybe we don't know all the details or that in the wealthiest country in the world, we have it dead wrong. Good health and good care is a birthright. Our food system and our healthcare systems are only going to get better if we decide we want better. We have to demand for better. We have to go against our conditioning towards convenience and stop participating in systems that are destroying the health of the consumer and the planet that we live on. This is a plea to those who can. Where money goes, energy flows. Supply and demand systems only change when we decide we've had enough. In this interview with Fred Provenza, we cover topics about soil health, intuitive eating, nutrition, scientific integrity, egos, and what it means to be a messy, perfectly imperfect human. I am definitely no professional podcaster, and you'll experience that at the end when we get, just get cut off with no warning, and I don't even know what happened to the closing. But like all of you, I'm just a real person, and I care deeply 
So I have to stand solid in the fact that even if it's not perfect, it matters enough for me to put it out there. I mean, it's our kids' future, so here we go. Please click on the show notes to find the link to Fred's book, Nourishment. It's an awesome read and so important for the intersections we're facing right now. Fred is one of the most published, accomplished, and most importantly, kindest people alive. If you want to know more about Fred, you can find him through any Google search or on any number of podcasts, including the one he did this summer with one of my favorites, Dr. Mark Hyman, on the doctor's pharmacy. Fred is truly a gift, and I am so grateful that he accepted my invitation to sit down. Please enjoy the interview. really uh, trying to understand why any creature, whether it's an insect or a goat or a human being, why they behave the way they do in an ecological context where you're, um, you've got all the different, in, in the case that I think about, we studied so much uh, domestic and wild herbivores foraging under natural conditions and what do the, not only what do they do but what what we when we took off on this behavioral ecology adventure you know, there was a lot of work in wildlife and in domestic animals uh, to describe natural history very important natural history work what do animals eat where do they go and I did a bunch of that too in observations and uh, it really drew me in then to think about, well, why do they do that? Why do they do that? And that's where it took us into all these uh, early life kinds of experiences in utero and early, early in life. What, what role does mother play? Uh, and broadening out from that over time, to the, the notion that they live in extended families that are linked to those landscapes transgenerationally. That means, uh, you know, really knowing where to go when it's a drought period? Where do you go to forage and uh, so forth and so on? So it's 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 behavior in an ecological setting, not not behavior in a lab, mm -hmm. where you're you're simply studying some principles. For instance, like Skinnerian behavior, where you look at the rats and mm -hmm. understand behavior by consequence. We wanted to do it in an ecological setting and really try to understand. Yeah, so there was a lot of work being done in the field that, and had been done for many, many years. More what I would refer to as natural history work. And when I say that, I want to make the point that that kind of work is so fundamentally important, just time spending out 
observing what animals do. Yeah. Um, and that's where my work really started off, watching those goats down there in southern Utah, not eating the plant parts that were most nutritious, eating wood rat houses and thinking, why are they doing that? Why? I'm not thinking, well, they're just... Um, you know, it's just crazy kind of behavior that and can't be explained. And they're just dumb animals. Right, yeah. that they're just dumb animals, but thinking, you know, there's got to be something functionally that's going on. So that's what we did, I think, that was really different. We, um, we wanted to understand why, why all the whys, understand the processes and how, how that works. That was the different thing that we brought into it. And so then we did something that people thought was really unusual. We started conducting a lot of studies in pens, actually. We moved out of the field because we knew in order to ask the animals certain questions, and we always asked the animals. We set up the studies so that we were asking them questions and then trying to learn from them. And so we did go to pens and people thought that was crazy, but we were able to ask animals questions. We were able to set mm -hmm. up studies in ways so that we could ask them and then learn fr from them, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and their responses. Their yeah. responses, that's right. Does, if you expose a young animal with its mother to a food, does that increase the likelihood it's gonna eat that food? Those are things that you can do really easily um, does experience in utero influence what animals do after birth? All those are things that you can experiment with and you can't do that so readily in the field mm -hmm. as you can in the, in, under more controlled conditions. So that, that's what we did that was really different and we were able to ask so many questions but um, not to beat it to death, I think what's really key is that all that was grounded in observations out in the field that that's all where, where it was coming from yeah. and then saying well if that's true then we ought to be able to run an experiment and they should tell us an answer that fits with the way we think the world's working and a, a lot of times it did but there were other times when it clearly didn't and i would get so frustrated because you know <laughs> i thought i had it and Absolutely. sue would add to that my wife sue would add to that because well you're gonna really learn something new now aren't you and I was pissed and frustrated <laughs> but she was right every time the thing we tried to do so hard though was to follow where the animals were leading us not we never hid data we never buried data like you read a lot about nowadays in nutrition yeah. world you know where yeah, people absolutely. doesn't fit with your idea bury the data publish the part that fits we tried so hard and I used to tell the grad students, you know, it doesn't matter how it goes. If it fits with our hypothesis, good. If it doesn't, we follow it. We'll just follow it. I think that's so critical. And um, I think what I think what you're saying is so key for right now because if the results it doesn't matter what the results are, you're going to get feedback no matter what the results are. If it doesn't fit your hypothesis, that's still information back. And you you know, you have to acknowledge it and you have to go with it you have to understand it um, but just to cherry pick the results that fit your you know your your hypothesis or your agenda or whatever is not useful it's not a useful way that's not science that's engaging in morally bankrupt activities and really subscribing to dogma so. That's right, and not not to. I, I don't like to try to judge people or anything else, but um, to pick an example, and it's not in a judgmental sense, but where it can lead. 
you think of Ansel Keys and his um, his hypothesis related to heart disease mm -hmm. and uh, fat and those sorts of things, the diet heart hypothesis, he ran two enormous studies that are very difficult to, at the scale he ran those studies uh, many, many years ago. The data that fit his hypothesis he published, he buried a lot of very, very important data that were just published a few years ago. And I really give credit to the people who unearthed those data, published two major uh, studies that, uh, that really show that the data that he was collecting weren't consistent with his hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, when the sugar industry jumped on top of that stuff back in those those days too to say yeah let's put the finger on fat and we'll put the finger not on sugar it's been a lot of disingenuous kinds of things that have happened over time and then I can see how that's really contributed to the to the pandemic of diet obesity diabetes all the diet related diseases it's so it plays out in big ways you know an ego ego is such a, a huge thing how we have all the yeah. egos that uh, a friend just sent me a paper this morning talking about a person uh, who had been the CDC I think for 30 years and then got involved in the nutrition end of things and uh, it's just I, I didn't read the paper I read the abstract and it the person is just disclosing how brutal those fields are loaded with mm. egos that have their own their ideas about how nutrition is and uh, when I was writing the book I, it was easy to see that I yeah uh, yeah. If I, you really peel, I mean, you don't even have to peel back many layers. It's just take one, one, you know, small step outside of the mainstream narrative. And it's like when you mess with science, you lose the trust of the people. And that is exactly where we're at right now. And um, it's sort of like these are messes that were made and created not by people, but by the regulatory agencies that really haven't done their job very well. So I'm driving here yesterday and and so much of, you know, we're in Ennis, Montana and so much of the land around the big mountains is grassland, native grassland. And so there's all these nice little cows living happy lives, eating grasses. And if the rancher um, had the ability to just sell meat to the community that they lived in, they'd also be happy ranchers. Um, but, you know, like my family ranched um, outside of Lewistown um, for, I don't know, close to 100 years before they had to stop. And it was basically like my great-grandfather said, you know, you, you guys aren't going to make it here. So my grandpa really wanted to stay. Ranching was his love. My dad loved ranching. It was so much a part of my family and the culture that I grew up in. But then, you know, I missed out on all that. I just got the culture. I didn't really get the experience. Um, and that's why I loved working for the Forest Service so much because I, I got a chance to like do the physical work and be around people that were fun and have that time outside. And I just, I, it, just it was such a good thing for me. But they, you know, I could even ask my aunts today. I could ask them, what was that like when you guys had to leave the ranch? And I guarantee you they would tell me the story and they would cry. And it's, it's, it's because there was this knowing that the industry or the ranching was changing because they were trying to feed a country that was kind of starving. I mean, you know, if you go back to the Dust Bowl, but we got confused because money became 
the carrot out there and everybody thought that more was better. And so can you give me a little bit of information about what is it like, what's the story of a meat, you know, a, a steak at the grocery store? You go to this grocery store and you pick up a USDA steak. Can you tell me how that cow in this, you know, this cow eating grass in Montana gets to that point? What's the story, basic, the general basic American story of how a steak makes it to the supermarket? Yeah, nowadays, um, you know, the, the calves uh, are born on rangeland, like you're saying. The majority of them are born on rangeland, reared out there with their mothers, and then, uh, you know, at several months of age, after they're weaned from their mothers and so forth, uh, they'll, they will be sold. The ranch I was on in Colorado, the calves were born uh, at, during those days. We were calving in February. Probably not the best time to be calving. We may not want to go into that. You know, it's better to match production cycles with like wild, what wildlife do. But we were calving in uh, in February. A lot of people do that, and then feeding hay during the winter, and then the calves would go with the mothers during the spring and summer up onto four BLM and Forest Service allotments, and then they'd come down in the fall and in September, October we'd uh, wean them and, and we'd sell them and then they would go to feedlots from there to be fattened on uh, on grain-based rations basically you know so much of the the food situation for livestock relates to to raising feeds raising hay to winter animals right. on or raising grains um, to feed animals in feedlots where they're fed these uh, what are referred to as total mixed rations and those are rations that are formulated out of grains and rough roughage, roughages like alfalfa and corn silage and so forth, and grains like corn and and uh, and so forth. And those rations are formulated to meet the needs of the average individual that's in a in a group. So they're uh, allocated to different lots in those feed lots, and and they're fed the total mixed ration until they reach. Um, finished condition when they're slaughtered and then cut up into different kind of mm -hmm. cuts, mm -hmm. including the steak that you mentioned, and then they end up in, in the supermarkets. Mm -hmm. So that that's the system, and that's the system that wasn't in place back in the early days. Cattle were finished on the place where they were born, mm -hmm. born and raised. And then butchered. And butchered more locally, mm -hmm. more many more local kinds of places where animals could be butchered and then sold much more locally um, you know that the feedlot system really came into existence in a big way after World War two yeah and so um, but that's the system that a lot of people are questioning nowadays um, from a animal welfare standpoint and I have to say a lot of the studies that we did over the years support those concerns actually i've never spoken too much about that until the last last few years but um there's just so many they violate all the five uh rights of animals you mm -hmm. know and the, the the five five welfare rights can you, can you people, tell do you, could you tell me off the top of the, your head what those are because well it's stress from, from uh, freedom from stress freedom from discomfort, freedom from injury, um, 
freedom from lack of nourishment. Those are the kinds of things I, I um, but so you start to think about that and you know, you could say, well, they're well fed in a feedlot. But if you look below the surface of what's happening with that, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is that there's no average individual. Yeah. So when you create a ration that's form balanced, formulated for the average individual, um, it it's not going to meet the needs probably of any individual. Mm -hmm. uh, imagine that someone formulated a food for you to eat each day. You eat the same food day after day after day. I would be sick. Yes, and it wouldn't be long until you'd say, I'm so sick and tired of this. Well, we did study after study after study that just shows not only do they get sick and tired of it, they are physically um, feeling sick, nausea, because the, the high grain rations are so, so high in energy, it's way more than the animal needs. Um, we've also done studies with cattle and sheep where we either feed them the total mixed ration or we give them a choice of the ingredients that go into making that ration. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to see uh, no two individuals will ever select the same combination, even of those four or five foods, which is really not much to choose from, but better than no choice, right? right. No two individuals will ever select the same um, the same combinations of foods, but no individual will select the same foods from day to day. They're varying their diet. When you look at uh, protein to energy ratios in their diet, which that's something nutritionists look at quite a lot. How much protein relative to energy? That varies as a function of needs mm -hmm. of animals. Right. And uh, when you look at the individuals that are offered a choice, some are way above the, the total mixed ration, some are below. None are right on that line. Medium. But if you average them all together, they come out exactly where the nutritionist formulated the ration. So, quote, on average, they're, they're just fine. But the they know two individuals are alike and they're not, none of them are doing that. And, and so if humans didn't have this prefrontal lobe and we were just literally the exact same as animals and we had a selection, we had a wide variety of foods to choose from. Like the animals, we would select foods based on our individual needs and we would be healthy and robust and resilient. But a lot of times with animals, like humans, we have this, especially, you know, I'm thinking about this as a mom seeing kids in the cafeteria who are eating 75% of their daily calories are coming from the school lunch program. And they're eating a breakfast that's full of just kind of simple carbohydrates. There's very little nutrient density. There's no phytochemicals in it. And then they have their lunch, the same thing same sort of dynamic and then dinner and who knows what that is and and really a lot a lot of times it comes down to financial um, ability to to pay for food but then some of it is just uh, I guess maybe sometimes it's lack of awareness on the parents part sometimes it's fatigue on the parents part sometimes it's just a social emotional dynamic between the parents trying to get them to eat a diet that's healthy and they get tired and they just think you know it's fine or whatever um, because really in a real in a, in a world that functions well you should be able to just go to the grocery store and buy food that is health promoting and your kids should just have access to it they should be able to pick something up and sort of follow that inner wisdom which I think children are more closely in tune with than adults are but when you remove access of those 
foods that are health promoting and you just give them maybe foods that provide a feedback loop that's based on sort of maybe neurochemicals like serotonin, um, like a high sugar diet or a diet that's, it, it's not necessarily about what is their body need, but it's more about what's the emotional need there. And, and like you had mentioned earlier, when we're talking about mothers and the really like the relationship that, or the way that mothers help children decide what's right to eat and decide what's, you know, maybe not useful to eat. There's also a way that mothers don't just show the children what to eat or the animals what to eat, but it's that they're also showing them how to have a relationship with food that's healthy. Because I think in this whole conversation around COVID and nutrition, the low hanging fruit is like the weight issue, you know, obesity. We have a, we have a nation full of obese people, but in my town and not, probably not different from here in a lot of places, in Montana, obesity maybe isn't the problem, but it's malnourishment. And when we stop it for a second and ask the question, well, why is that? You know, I, I see kids that have um, symptoms that are in line with malnourishment. I ask why, why is that happening? And what can you do about it? Because that's ultimately what we all want to know is what's the action item to take here? And so then you kind of have to look at the food system and go, well, why aren't there nutritional needs being met? Um, and it isn't, you know, it, we, we are, we are um, saturated with low nutrient dense food, food that has little to no nutritional value whatsoever. And so maybe that kid isn't o overweight, maybe their family isn't overweight, but they could be malnourished and until you look at you know, a person's micronutrient status through blood tests and um, you really don't know. And so it is just a matter of um, stopping for a second and saying, okay, you know, I, I really like to advocate that people who can should. So if you are a family that has economic resources to not always engage with the global food supply, say from Costco and buy your greens in a package um, where I live, I don't know what it's like over here, but you can't throw a brick without hitting a farm. You know, I and mean, there's so much local food to engage with. And so there's no reason not to. And I guess the other reason I really advocate for that is when you can, you should. And because I think that engaging with that system is a way of just kind of going with that quote of vote with your dollars. And so when people remove their money out of that economic, that market, that global food supply, it sends a message. It says, we're not interested in this anymore. You aren't meeting our needs. We don't, we don't want this. Because I think what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years is we're going to see a tsunami of greenwashing of our, our, our food. And it's going to be marketed like it's somehow better than what it was before. And it won't be. <laughs> so that's just my gut feeling. But ultimately, I'm not here to be a food snob. I, I, I'm a realist. And I just, I just really want to see that little, that little kid at the table at the cafeteria who's eating frosted mini wheats for breakfast. I'd like to have them have like a real breakfast. And I'd like that to be available for all kids. And so they have a better future and a better life and a better quality of life and longer life. So anyways, that's my, that's why I'm here, Fred. <laughs> no, absolutely the case, Jess. And uh, 
food policy gets so linked with all of this, right? What the kids are offered in schools, lunch systems and so forth. And then you have the huge powerful corporate interests that are playing a major role in terms of policy. And the big tobacco playbook has been used over and over and over again by uh, to sow doubt and whether it's for sugar, any kind of refined carbohydrates and uh, powerful players still doing those sorts of things. And I often think in line with what you're saying, you know, if um, there is a wisdom to the body, I think it hasn't been so corrupted in younger people, although it can, if mother's eating a really crappy diet, it starts in the womb. They're already starting to, to learn to eat crappy foods. Their body's starting to prepare its organ systems for eating those foods. So, you know, it's a bugger. And how, how do you get people then to, to, to take back, to reclaim, to fight for the wisdom in their own body and to say, you know, the one authority that never gets asked is the wisdom in my own body but to enable that wisdom means that you have to be eating wholesome foods right mm -hmm. to really uh, fruits vegetables meat nuts and just get the processed junk out of your diet we all fight with that when sue and i started to really think about that years ago we simply decided that it, it, we wouldn't bring it home. When we were in the grocery store, it just doesn't get into the basket. We bring wholesome foods home. And there is a cost, and I've read articles on costs. And, uh, you know, the, but uh, some of the articles I read too were comparing, I remember one in particular was comparing, I think it was a strawberry fruit gusher <laughs> with strawberries. And mm. they were saying, if you look at the cost I should dig that up again. It was really good. If you look at the cost per unit of nutrition, the strawberry is far less expensive than right. the fruit gusher. You're just kidding yourself. It's, but then look down the road at the cost of society that's playing out. It, it's enormous, and that's where policy could play a role. But you have all the big players, and as we were talking, they're all fighting for turf. and uh, They don't want the status quo no. to be dismantled in any way, and you can see them... You can see them as the pandemic goes on. It's like, well, gee, don't you think that we should acknowledge that, you know, yes, 600,000 Americans died because of COVID. And then you ask the question why, but then back up a step and say, oh, hey, you know, 700,000 Americans die every year because of diet and lifestyle related issues. Uh, um, we're talking about food industry obscuring food and the science behind it. And I have a little story to share with you. Um, a woman contacted me. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty cheap, I'm a pretty cheap nutritionist. I like to keep my price point low because I, and I, I do it because I love it and I'm fascinated by it and I am a huge nerd and I love reading. And so I was contacted by a woman who had what they are calling long haulers, which is going to be the biggest uh, biggest change in our system and our healthcare system that we've ever seen. I think that the insurance companies, the healthcare system is going to be flooded with people with post-viral uh, syndrome or, you know, post-COVID symptoms. 
So she reached out to me and she said, hey, can I um, ask for your advice? I had COVID in October. I still don't feel good. What can I do? And literally, I mean, I, I, I go for the low-hanging fruit first, you know, sleep, nutrition, um, hydration, and how's, you know, how's the quality of your life? How's, you know, are you connected? Are you having, you know, do you have meaningful purpose in your day? And so we talked about all these things and all I really did, she has a great life. She's got lots of family around. She's a wonderful person. And um, all I did is I asked her to remove the junk from her diet. So we got her on a whole foods diet with lots of herbs and spices and lots of, um, lots of good hydration starting first thing in the morning and then just kind of keeping her blood sugar stable throughout the day because she was older and, and you know dealing with some other kind of metabolic issues. Three weeks later she contacted me and she said she felt she not felt that good in a long time and it was just a really simple thing. It didn't cost more money. It wasn't adding another list or another thing on her to-do list. It was a simple lateral out, out of the processed food and she felt so much better. I think it's true. If you get that stuff out of your diet and you realize that it's really not good for you metabolically, um, you don't want... I want people to feel empowered and that's, yeah. that's what I want. Is I want people to have the information that they need to go to the store and make the decisions that are going to make their life better. And someone asked me the other day, they're like, why do you do this? Why do you do, you know, why do you work, how did you start working in nutrition? And I started working in nutrition because it was like really one of the first jobs I ever had. I worked with a woman who was a doctor and she saw that she could get no, in that system, she couldn't get anywhere. Because this is back before functional medicine really even existed. So she, she knew she wasn't getting results with her clients, with her patients. And so she quit her practice and she moved, she transitioned over to do work that she knew was going to move the needle for people. And that was nutrition. So what she did was she opened a restaurant that was based in promoting health. So it was a juice bar. It was all organic. It was from her garden. She brought, and I don't even know how public health, the public health department allowed her to do this, but she brought food from her garden. We juiced it. We cooked with it. She had practitioners come in and talk to us about inflammation. And I was a young person. And so I'm just taking all this in and I'm getting blown away. And then I think the, the most important thing was I was experiencing it. So I was feeling the difference inside my own self. And I thought, why would I ever want to go back to feeling tired? And um, I think that was the thing for me as a teenager and a young adult. I was fatigued a lot. And it was idiopathic. There was no source. They couldn't find the reason. The best they could do was put me on iron pills, which is such, a, you know, shooting a bullet in the dark, you know, who knows? And so until the nutrition piece came together for me, I really didn't feel good. And that was a long time to not feel good in a time in your life where the, so the social expectation is that you're supposed to be feeling great. And I wasn't. So that was a really turning big turning point for me and I was juicing wheatgrass which you know I mean if you have like if you need to kind of do some sweep up work inside of your cellular body that's a great thing to use but um, anyways it was um it was really important and it really changed a lot for me so um, I think that's the big thing is that people just need to experience the difference firsthand and and not take someone's word for it um, unless they like feeling like junk. But I don't think that our environmental 
health, you know, climate change, I don't think that our planet can sustain more people being willing to feel like junk. I think that getting off of that food supply, that monoculture crop, those crops that they're feeding animals at the feedlot, um, the crops that they're putting into our cereals and breads, the sugars, we, we can't sustain that as a group of people and our planet can't either because there's a lot of environmental degradation that goes on along with monocrop um, corn, soy, wheat. Um, and no, I'll just add a point to that too that links back with your earlier question about uh, so you go to Costco or wherever and you buy a steak and uh, where did that steak come from? And I think an important uh, point that I should add related to that, to the health, um, if animals are born and raised on a landscape and if that landscape is being managed well in terms of how cattle are grazed, and there's many different ways to do that, or sheep or goats or whatever it is, um, there, there's much to that. Grazing isn't grazing, it isn't grazing. There, grazing can be done in ways that encourage uh, the biodiversity of plant communities, who cares about that? Why should it matter? That matters because it, it increases health of systems below ground. Mm -hmm. You know, you can think about that there are omnivores like humans, there are herbivores like cows, there are carnivores like mountain lions that live below ground too. They're just small, tiny things that eat one another. And the, but their health is greatly enhanced when you have a diversity of different species, much like the health of animals that are offered a choice of the ingredients in a total mixed ration versus the total mixed ration. That's below ground. Above ground as well, it creates, uh, I like to say, plants turn dirt into soil, living into living system and diverse mixtures of plants turn soil into homes, grocery stores, and pharmacies yeah. for herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores below and above ground. That diversity idea is really important. So, so health comes from that as opposed to, as you're saying, the monoculture crop that are farmed for so much of the ingredients that go into our diet to make the highly processed foods, but also for the feedlot rations as well. Then there's another part to realize is that the foods that animals we eat are eating, if it's a dairy cow and the milk and cheese that comes from that cow, or a beef cow, and again, or a sheep or a goat or whatever, um, those foods that they're ingesting influence the richness, what we refer to as the phytochemical, all these compounds, health-promoting compounds that are in plants. Uh, that influences the phytochemical and biochemical richness of the milk and the cheese and the meats of animals. We know that that's the case and that um, that scales up to us then. We're eating something that's more healthful. So the, I, the key point I'm trying to say is it's all connected from the plant diversity through soil health through the health of animals and there's studies coming out nowadays by young people around the world that I'm loving to see that are comparing animals on a monoculture pasture versus more diverse pasture. What's that do for their health? They're healthier. Then we're eating and drinking that. That promotes health throughout the system at all these levels. That's really the key, the key point. And I know as a society we've become very detached from that, but mm -hmm. it's real. And 
it's influencing the health of the whole system. And then to tie back with what you're saying, you know, there's nearly 8 billion of us. When I was born, there were 2.5 billion of us. Now we're to 8 billion. How are we going to do that? How are we going to maintain the health? There's a, you know, in, in range and wildlife, we talk about carrying capacities a lot. There's carrying capacities. There's a certain amount of creatures that can live in particular areas. And there's a carrying capacity for the earth. And 8 billion is a lot of us. So we need to be thinking about how, how do we enhance and maintain the health of this planet and our health as well. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that comes to mind that may seem strange, but in the study we did where we offered animals a choice uh, versus the no choice total mixed ration, the animals offered a choice actually ate less food. They ate less, not more. And so you think if we increase the diversity of landscapes, and the diversity of our diets and where it's coming from, we may actually be eating less as a species, not more, which that's important. Then, <laughs> how much do we need to produce? Huh? If you can eat less and be really health, healthy, um, that's significant too when you think of it across 8 billion of us on the planet. And those biodiverse landscapes that you're talking about are resilient to all of the different. Um, climate events that happen, you know, drought, uh, floods, everything, and, and, it, and it's just an interesting, I guess, observation or correlation, and, and there's now science coming out behind it, but when animals are, are feeding off of those things, it changes their nutrition profile, which then in turn improves the health of the individual eating the animal, and, and, and then the notion of eating less. And you, I, I'm going to try to quote you, but you help me here because um, I, I think I heard you say that there is a scientist who came out with an actual number about um, carbon sequestration because this is a really big thing when we're looking at native biodiverse landscapes and the root systems below the earth and the amount of carbon that they can sequester from the atmosphere. And so I think you said one square foot of native grasses can sequester seven pounds of carbon did you is this am i pulling this out of thin air no you're probably not i don't i um i'm not i don't think you're pulling it out not of thin air I'm, but I, i'm not, not that I, I don't every know. word you said it's, I'm, I'm kind of close i'm trying to get close <laughs> that that's the idea i think one of the things that's really surprising for those of us who've been involved either directly or indirectly in some of this um, you know, you think of carbon being sequestered in the plants and stored in roots below ground and so forth, and that, that's certainly the case, and there's uh, some indication, it's controversial, that depending on how your grazing is, that, that you can sequester more carbon than, than, than it's being emitted. But one of the interesting findings has to do with the soil microbiome. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about microbiomes in humans and, and in soil as well. But when you have really healthy, diverse plant communities, you create homes for all this microbiome. And up to two-thirds of the carbon that's sequestered can be in that microbiome, not just in the roots of the plants and the tissues. It's in this living mass of creatures, mm -hmm. bacteria, fungi, and so forth 
that's a really amazingly interesting uh, figure to me. Uh, it makes me think too, ruminant nutrition, historically, when I uh, first started to learn about that many years ago, they had been studying the rumen microbiome for ages. Hmm. Rumen nutritionists, nutrition, in my view, back in those days, was totally about the rumen, the rumen and its microbes, period. And what happens to those microbes to the extent that it was boring to me, actually. I thought there's certainly, that's important, but there's, there's a whole other creature that's hooked to that microbiome, too. It isn't just that. I think that a lot with humans nowadays, too, and the emphasis. But certainly, the, they recognize the importance of that and, uh, and how when animals are on really good, diverse kind of diets, the diversity of the microbiome is greatly, greatly enhanced. And the number of species, the, the populations, not, not just the different, num the different species, but their populations are grow. And that's the same thing they're talking about now with below ground, when you have healthy system, you create tremendous populations of, of organisms and they are part of that sequestration of carbon. They're, they're a really important part of that. So that that's pretty interesting mm -hmm. to me to, to be reading about that and the importance of that. And then again, it goes back to what we're saying that having diverse um, systems of organisms is, is so fundamentally important to the health of this planet and to our health as well. Yeah, and it's like that, that I think you have it in the slideshow you sent me, but it's that design, that apex design, which is humans at the top of the ecosystem and we're just here to consume and, you know, high five Mother Earth, thanks, and that's it, and it's a one-way street. And so this whole idea of reciprocity like you have in the other the ego versus eco and it's um this is a change that really requires dismantling a lot of the systems that have been in place and sort of rebuilding something new and that's kind of the place that we're hopefully we're in right now i don't know um it's it's important to me that we we get there and and start looking at human beings being a part of that microbiome that ecosystem the thing about these communities is that they've got a pulse on the landscape like like nobody else. They can tell you when something isn't right at the very beginning. Uh, they know when a cow isn't feeling good. You know, I mean, they just have a pulse on things that we don't appreciate. We go to the store, we buy our food, we don't think about it. But it de they're, they're dependent upon that for livelihood. And it's kind of like if you're gonna do ranching or agriculture in a way that provides you a living, you have to you almost have to engage with the system and and I was gonna make I was gonna bring this in earlier this point that like 80% of our meat gets processed in um, four factories uh, four but four processing factories in the United States and the consumer has no connection no awareness about where the state came from there's the the rancher is not benefiting from that system at all and so there's this whole rumble this conversation around um, helping to support you know more of Montana I mean Montana I think is I mean we're we're kind of a major player here in the cattle industry and so when um, people are talking about getting more meat processing locally I'm mean, god that was just such a huge thing I, I can't even I'm like yes please like how can we help support that and and so you know it's kind of like this this jump but 
I was out talking with my family friends um, a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to them about regenerative agriculture. I mean, what they're doing is regenerative agriculture. It, 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 they don't have to do anything different. So, you know, but it's that part about when they have to send them off to the feedlot. That's when things get all messed up, and then they process them in those factories, and then they get sent to the shelves in the grocery store, and there's just no connection. There's this big unhooking of what they're doing, the work that they're doing. And so I'm talking to these family friends who I just love so much, and they're looking at me like I have a tinfoil helmet on and, you know, like I'm a nut. And I'm talking about regenerative. I'm like, you guys are already doing it. Um, but, you know, I guess I would like to hope that there could be a system with more winners and winners and not winners and losers. And um, when you talk to these communities out east in eastern Montana, what is the reception that you get and, and how does that go? I, and it kind of harkens back to this question about coming together and having dialogue with really different ideas. But they're not different. They're just, you know, what's the communication like and how are you received? Well, they're, they're wonderful conversations. This uh, workshop that uh, Alan Williams and I uh, did this workshop, and Fisher, had asked us a year ago to do it, and when the pandemic hit, uh, just they canceled it, so we did it this year. And there were over 100 people from seven states, seven different states in Canada came to Baker, which if you've ever been to Baker, it's at the end of the earth, I right? Have, I mean, I there, there, there. There, there's nothing there, huh? <laughs> you have to work to get to Baker. But I have to say too, it is self-selected. They, they, it's people that are very interested in regenerative ag and really trying to do their best to uh, do all the things that, that we're talking about here now of grow really healthy food for people, of being able to direct market to people. And so, so they're just really interested in, in, uh, in furthering their uh, understanding and, and abilities to do that. So it, it's, it's incredibly positive, actually. Okay. Now, if I were to um, go and speak with a group who had never heard about any of this or so forth, it might be a different kind of, mm -hmm. of reception. Although, for the last 20 years, I've been doing the, these kind of things, been doing them, doing them, doing them. and. Um, and then further back than that, teaching at Utah State. And uh, over the years, I changed m very much the way that I try to approach people, the way that I try to... And a little humor doesn't hurt. I love <laughs> to make a lot of humor in what I do, so we don't... Uh, get too serious. No, none of us gets too serious about it. The other thing, too, that goes back to the first part of our conversation. We were really trying to understand principles and processes. How do things work? How does, and, and be amazed by it at the plant behavior, animal behavior, just in awe of how amazing it really is. And so when I give talks like in Baker, I don't try to tell people anything that you should do this mm -hmm. or this is the way. Even subtly, I don't try. I, I just try to explain what we learned about, and then I do give examples of you know. Well, this person used it to to do this on their place, or that person used it to do that, or this other person. So it's by way of example, and the the idea is to just get people thinking. How how are these systems working? 
how maybe could I use it if I want to to enhance my operation and that includes economically to cut costs actually because exactly. most of this and we didn't get into it and don't need, but we alluded to it a little bit all these inputs are because we've moved away from natural processes and how these natural processes work nature's a low cost low cost operator on all of this stuff and we we've because of the plant varieties we've selected the way we grow them the way we raise animals we've had to have put a lot of fossil fuel inputs into everything we do and you know, it happened incrementally, how the best intentions, the Green Revolution, we've got all these people to feed, how can we do this? But we moved incrementally away from farming and ranching in nature's image mm -hmm. to these really heavily fossil fuel subsidized kind of inputs. And uh, that's going to come to an end with fracking. We've kicked the can down the road. Right. But then you add fracking and changing climates and all the rest of this. Well, and just business. the chemical inputs too, with managing Chemi weeds and. Uh, That's right. Plants may surprise people to know. Plants produce their own herbicides. It's a whole mm -hmm. field called allelopathy of how, and plants produce compounds that animals can use to self-medicate and to get rid of internal parasites, and uh, they produce. Uh, uh, compounds that keep insects away so you know all those things that plants have we selected against because there's a bit of a cost plants have to allocate some resource to make those compounds but in the long run they become much better for our health and the health of the system than than the way we ended up going again it's not it's not to blame you can see how it evolved naturally but now's yeah. the time to have a really big think about all this stuff and um, it's it's maybe a last chance for us to really try to think about natural systems, how they work, become ecologists, you know, really, and become caught up in the, how amazing this planet is, how utterly amazing all of that is. If we get if we start to get into more of the ecological facets of plants and animals and how all that works and then to realize we're a part of that. We're, yeah. we're, as you said, you know, move away from ecological to ecological and seeing ourselves as a part of nature systems and thinking about how can we function as a as a part not as the big ego that thinks right. it's in control because we're, we're learning we're not. Uh, we're, <laughs> more and more we're learning we don't have and the, all the unanticipated, unintended consequences, consequences. that come from, from our actions, we're seeing them more and more, and so. Yeah, uh, humans and the planet are, des are designed to survive if we let them, but we have to get out of the way for that to happen. So, um, so kind of back to discourse, it's something that's going on, you know, this is really hopeful, cool, good information that you're able to go and talk to communities about really how to do less and get more you know winners and winners and not a system of winners and losers and so but like you know i think people in general right now are struggling to, com to communicate with each other because there's a lot of ideas floating around out there and a lot of people spending a lot of time alone thinking a lot about those ideas and feeling a lot of emotional attachment to the ideas. I mean, basically, I guess dogma would be maybe the way to categorize that. 
but then when there's the need I mean discourse is really how we evolve it's an important part of our evolution and so when we are lacking that we are stuck and you know you describe this well in your book and I actually what did your your one student I mean I could almost visualize this I feel like I was in the classroom I had a very similar class because I uh, I went out my freshman year of college I started out in environmental studies and then I was in forestry and I could not figure out what I wanted to do but I just knew that I really liked knowing more about you know nature and trees and plants and how did they work and and so um, I was in a class just like that except for I was the one with like the Patagonia fleece on and then everybody else had their cowboy boots on and you know it was this big divide between hippies and and egg and so <laughs> but the thing is that's funny is that we were all in the, on the same team ultimately and and we were missing that because we were sort of stuck in in different ideas about each other and so I see this a lot now and it, it it's 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 somewhat comical and also a little heartbreaking too because it holds us back as people so what is it that you know you learned and how did really i mean this kind of harkens back to your your time when you were just really dealing with depression and this this was a transformation period this was and i i do think that there is something to be said about going through a dark period and i think a lot of people are going through their very very first dark period right now um, you went through a transformation and it allowed you to facilitate a classroom environment where different ideas from different camps could talk to each other. You did that. And I guess, what did you learn and, and, and what was that like for you going through that period of time? And then what, how did that change the way you engaged with the world after? You know, what was that? Let's expound on that a little bit. Yeah, so... <clears throat> Really, growing up, I never had a dark day in my life. I was happy-go-lucky. I was reflective type, but, you know, always happy. And uh, when we left the ranch and I went to grad school, I, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. Knew that that's what I would end up doing, research. I was just fascinated by it. Uh, then got on the faculty, and as part of that role, you need to teach. And I didn't dislike teaching but I wasn't that interested in it actually and it was kind of frightening to be on the other side of the desk <laughs> and looking at all those it's people true, looking yeah. at you and you realize you probably really don't know anything <laughs> much at all even though you've got a PhD and so forth so so that was in the in the in 1981 that I got on the faculty and moved right up the academic ladder from assistant to associate to full professor and by the late 80s and the bottom fell out for me then i i don't know what all happened but in a way i think it was like so is this all there is is this all there is mm -hmm. to it uh, whatever combination of things conspired i i fell into deep deep depression for five year period i'd like to say in those days i had to look up to see a worm and it it just went on and on and on and i thought this is just the way it's going to be. All the things I loved, going fishing, for instance, or going to the mountains. Not a whisper of a, you know, just nothing was interesting. It was hard. And I often thought about uh, suicide. I mean, it ha goes with depression, That's right? Great. I mean, that can yeah. come along with it. And I think the only reason I didn't is my wife, Sue, and we had two young kids, and I just couldn't do that. Yeah. 
it just went on and on and on and on and uh, we went to Australia at that time mm -hmm. we went for for a year sabbatical in 91 92 and I had a friend at the Ag Experiment Station he was a really sarcastic guy <laughs> he, he he was an editor there and he'd edit our papers before they were published in scientific journals I liked him a lot and uh, the day before we left I went over to tell him goodbye and he looked at me and he said, you're a sick bastard. I said, you better believe it. You know, I was ashamed to tell people, yeah, you know, I don't feel course. good. And they, yeah. they wouldn't know it, but I'd... And so he handed me a book. He said, why don't you take that and read it while you're over there in Australia? And so uh, we got there to Australia. We didn't have a house at first. We were living in Australia up on the tablelands. And it's cold there in the winter, actually. It was really Nobody ever talked about this stuff, and here's this whole thing that's nothing about that. So I'm telling Sue, and we're talking about it. She's reading it, and we do like to read aloud to one another over time. And uh, well, it's it's the power of myth by Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers, and he's just talking about world mythologies and all the different beliefs of people from um, the historical religions, you know, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism. Uh, so forth, and also uh, Native American people, you know, natives from around the world, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's just like every bit of it really resonated with me. It's like that's that's it, that's it, and that's what what needs to be. When we came back, first thing I did was to go to the university library. And I got the tapes because we wanted to see this guy. You know, we wanted to <laughs> to see. <laughs> you can, time. I tear up a lot. Um, so we wanted to see Joe and Bill Moyer, and Bill did a great job of the interview. So um, that, and from then on, I thought, you know, I'm never going to teach this class the same way. Because we focus in the universities on the material, right? You need to learn about whatever the subject is. We're going to tell you all this stuff. For me, at that point, it was like it has to relate to this broader. It has to link the physical with the spiritual facets of life, and not some one religion or another. It has to be with with that broad connection. And so, mm -hmm. so then became the adventure of how you teach like that. <laughs> I lost some classes, I can tell you that. <laughs> Showing Joseph Campbell tapes in a range science class. <laughs> They're like, what the hell are we doing here? And so, you know, I, I, during that decade of the 90s, I worked hard to try to, and, and I got better at it, but at the end of the semesters, and I'd get good evaluations, I'd tell so I never got there, I didn't get there, never got there, didn't get there, it's not, so it took me a lot of years to, um, and I learned a lot. I learned that you, I had to make myself totally vulnerable in mm -hmm. front of the group. No more ego kind of stuff. No more, I'm the prof. You, I lecture, you take notes, and then you, I used to say, puke it back to me on a test. And I remember the first time when I decided not doing tests anymore. Forget that. Mm -hmm. Don't want this, this mode. And, 
I didn't tell the students. It happened midway through a class, and I just said, enough, I can't stand this anymore. And so they came in, I thought this would be fun. They came in the day ready for the test, you know, and they're all there, you know how it is, everybody cramming and looking at their notes, and I, and I just said, well, I'm not giving you a test today. I'm giving you a take-home test. Mm -hmm. And you could just see the relief, just the sigh of huge relief go out, out of the group. It was... You know, so it was over several years that, tra that the transition occurred for me, and uh, I changed the topics, the major topics. It, the last many years I taught, there were four sections, challenges, opportunities, living in an evolutionary spirit, and transcending boundaries. That's, and then we talked about all the issues of the day within those. What are the challenges, but what are the opportunities? How do we think of that in a, living in an evolutionary spirit? And how do we transcend our own boundaries? All boundaries are arbitrary, we invent them. Then, ironically, we find ourselves trapped within them, as Peter Sank said in the fifth discipline. It's so true. So, but then it came to not lecturing anymore. I, I thought, um, it's going to be about dialogue and about share, sharing experience. And then I, what struck me so much is that my role is to set the stage to create, a, create an environment where people are not afraid to speak from the heart. None of this ego brain stuff where my way is better in your way and I'm smarter than you and all the rest of that. But that the challenges we face are enormous, but so are the opportunities, but we've got to work together. Just you were saying discourse, I, I use the term dialogue, where you suspend, try to suspend all your assumptions and just listen to one another. And it was fabulous what was happening in those classes. And they weren't just, we're gonna come in and shoot the shit and blah, blah, blah. Mm -mm. They were rigorous. You, They had to come prepared because they were gonna be the ones leading the, the dialogue. So you never knew on the day that I would say, Jess, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Um, and you get us started on leading, the, you know, and you had to have done the readings or, or watched the video or whatever. You had to be prepared. And they were. And that, so there was a tension in there in that sense of being prepared. But there was a no tension in terms of the students coming to. Um, be able to speak from the heart, and it cut across everything. And we didn't have to agree whether it was on climate change or your religious beliefs or whatever, all those, uh, or science or any of it, all that was on the table. But the, the level of the conversation and the information that was coming out of when you had 55 to 65 people all participating, you, you just came to realize how, how would I say, I, from my side, how arrogant to think that one person should stand up there and just be the only thing speaking when you can, you can tap into such amazing kind of experience basis. And so the last several years that, uh, of my career, maybe the last decade, and nobody ever missed a class. And if they yeah. did, they would send me notes. Oh, I'm sorry, I have to miss today. Why? I mean, that's when time too when a lot of kids would blow off classes if you could get whatever. Because you know why come there? Why waste? You know why? Shouldn't say waste your time, but why? Why come there? Uh, I can read the stuff and take the test and so forth. Why? 
it's obvious why they wanted to come because it was so such moving we laughed we cried mm -hmm. people are wired to be together and feel heard and we uh, when we don't talk to each other in meaningful ways and speak from the heart like you're saying we don't get that real connection that heart mind body connection and there's something you said that I heard and you're talking about your job as a professor changed and the way you viewed it and it was it's almost really parallel to the rancher um, who's doing less work and creating more benefit and more less inputs more impact and I guess that's what I'm hearing you say and it's just it just it was just an interesting parallel but it does it's that change from ego to eco there's more reciprocity and less sort of singular myopics one apex centered focus of I'm the leader I'm gonna do all these heavy-handed inputs and you will answer back to me and, and, and it's it is this kind of dismantling of a dominator culture where we get to just be here and um, and again we really are wired to be connected and so when we take that out and we remove that part of our existence we really are missing out on so many things and I think um, I think that's just, I think that's been kind of an experience for people that they didn't expect with all of the stuff going on with COVID and how um, removed we've been from each other. And, you know, important conversations get filtered down through things that happen on social media. And it's really damaging to people. Um, I, I hate social media. I think it's like a fast track to like feeling bad about yourself. and. You know, nobody's nobody's really functioning optimally when they're feeling bad about themselves, and it's absolutely it's almost by design. You know, it's almost to kind of create consumers. And the more you go into your own world or your own world with with just the people you feel safe with, the worse it is for society. I used mm -hmm. to see that in those classes, and it's like you say, <clears throat> I had people from across the spectrum, from the hardcore environmental uh, people to the hardcore ranching people, to wildlife range, all, all different, strongly held different kind of viewpoints. Even though they were young, they still had really strong Absolutely. strong viewpoints yeah. of how the world was, and they were ready to... You should talk to my nine-year-old. Yeah, I mean, Or my six-year-old. I mean, they all, <laughs> they have a strong opinion about things. Yes, they do, and so they brought that with them. And I remember I became very comfortable with this and very looked forward to it. Um, when you come in and you're there, they were angry. They uh, in those days, and maybe still today, there there was more, really a, more so. yeah, probably yeah. more so. There was a huge amount of anger, and they were from the first day they were ready to to attack one another. The stories and the things that happened was amazing. But I became very very comfortable with that because I knew when we enter into dialogue. All that's going to go away for you. It'll go away, and it, it takes takes a little bit of time of listening and creating the environment where we're going to listen to one another. And I'm going to be a model for that. Too. I'm going to listen to everything you say, and I'm not going to shoot any one of you down. Um, but Sue used to say, "You're going to somebody's going to shoot you someday. They're going to shoot you." I think she was a little bit worried because mm -hmm. it, the the. The animosity and the anger was so so strong in those classes, and I think of different individuals and the take-home tests, 
And I would tell, there were two parts to those. I wanted them to talk from a professional standpoint about the material that we'd covered and what that means for you. And you could say, doesn't mean a damn thing. I think it's a waste of time. Right. Just tell me and justify why you think that. And then I want from a personal standpoint, what's it mean to you? And it was amazing, amazing, amazing to watch how the responses would change for individuals as you went through that semester. It was just, mm -hmm. it was moving because you realized that that's what we needed was to dialogue. We needed to, to recognize each one as an individual who's sacred and and that we are too, and then to share that and and to realize we're gonna have much better solutions if we all work together to think about it from all these different viewpoints than if we just go into our own little group and then we decide this is the and that's what's so sad about the world today it's not just in the u.s the polar the extreme polarization and social media like you say it facilitates that we'll get with our own little group and we'll all all buddy up to one another and right and say how bad the rest of the world is rather than than and i'm not all the politicians i mean there's some you listen to and you think on both sides of the aisle mm -hmm. that i think you know I love hearing that, but there's a lot that don't do that, mm -hmm. and they're just encouraging the polarization. And it's not just here. I'm just reading about in Israel what's happened mm -hmm. with Netanyahu and the divisions, Absolutely. and now in France, uh, a friend I have there that I correspond with each day is sending me things. It's you know we need to work together, huh? And you think of a planet with this teeny little orb, I love it when the astronauts talk about looking back here from the moon and you just see how teeny we are in that vastness of space. And I remember Jim Lovell, I've just been talking about him a little bit, and when he went, when they were when we were first exploring, going to gonna to go to the moon, he did one of the first flights, went up there and circled and then and came back and he said, that <clears throat> just, totally changes how how you look at things he said um, yeah looking at the earth from from space you just puts it in such a perspective he said I, I learned learned two things from that that experience is really how insignificant we are in the vastness of all that and number two and I love this he said we think you die and you go to heaven and he says you born you come to heaven you're in heaven right here yeah. this is it if you realize that and if you if we were to wake up if we were each to wake up that as he said and as anita morjani said in dying to me be me when she realized that heaven is a state not a place mm -hmm. and you can be in it wherever and like eckhart totally right about the power of now and what happens when you when you wake up or become enlightened? If you can get to that state, you realize you're at one with everything that ever was and ever will be. Huh? You're at one with with being. You you are that, and that's it, the old traditions. Huh? It is the old traditions, and and also this idea that you're here now for a reason. It's this isn't you know, it's this perspective that I think. You know going through my own dark period um that i had to really tell myself 
that I'm here right now for a reason because there were days, lots of days. And when you're parenting young children, it's not a good place to be, but days where I couldn't figure out why I was here and what I was supposed to do. And my life had changed so drastically after having children. And I had a, st a high status situation and that all kinds of pats on the back for all the <laughs> things that people perceived my job to be like. And it really wasn't that. And so then um, I had a couple of children and it really took everything, all that away. And then I was doing a job that in society, they hold up here with words, you know, oh, being a mother is one of the most important things, but then systemically there's no reinforcement of those words anywhere. And you really kind of feel, I felt very insignificant and it was really hard. But on the other side of that, it was felt kind of like boot camp for right now. And I felt like, I, I actually do see that that was a really beneficial experience and that really turning into that pain almost and that body of pain and figuring out so many things, looking at your life and being introspective and recognizing that, that whatever happened to you wasn't about you. It was just the resources that were available with the parents that you had and that the place that you're at now and the reason that you're on planet Earth was you know, it's important that you go through those things and then you can bring it back to other people. So um, I guess the people who are feeling alone out there, I just, you know, or awful or going through something for the first time, I think it's important to know that there is another side to it and there's a reason for the pain and suffering. It's growth and it doesn't feel good. But on the other side is, is, is there anything that you want to say to the up-and-coming generation of people who are navigating the present-time situation. Anything that you want to offer up about how to engage with with the with climate change, and I think so many things can be solved um, with less input and more um, just more plugging into different systems. And so, so what do you? Anything you want to sign off with? Yeah, that's that's a really good and a really big question. Huh? No, there's no denying. <clears throat> I think I think back to the old people that I knew, and how much I used to enjoy listening to them mm -hmm. for their lifetime of of uh, just being on the planet. I, I enjoyed that so much, and I always thought the world was going to hell at that point <laughs> because you know that's yeah ages ago they all, but. I think the challenges are real nowadays. I, I think, um, and much greater than what those old people were talking about and worried about to me, ecologically the issues, economically the issues, socially, all the issue, issues are, are really, really big. And so I think, um, you know, what, what helps, has always helped me with all of that is to be able to participate, to be able to feel like like you're doing something that that's maybe helping out with, with what's happening. We talked about vote with your dollars and just the things that, you know, becoming aware, I think, of what's what's happening nowadays and uh, and thinking about what what you can do to do your part and then that's all you can do. Uh, there's the quote that uh, 
Joseph Campbell that, that I think about a lot. He said, when we think, think about solving the world's problems, we're barking up the wrong tree. The world's perfect. It's a mess. It's always been a mess. It's always going to be a mess. Our job is to straighten out our own lives. So that's really the place to start and end, huh? and to try to get yourself grounded and centered, and to keep yourself grounded and centered. And I think a lot of where we went in Western society in the U.S. here, with all the material things, with all the things that detach us from nature and natural systems, I don't think they've been helpful for us. I spent a lot of time in other countries around the world and interacting with Peace Corps people. And a lot of them, once they do that, they don't want to come back to the U.S. because it's such a materialistic country. It, all of our, everything is so focused on all the materialistic things, you know, and living in boxes, um, in phones and that stuff. That's right. Um, it's not the world of nature, and it's not the world that, uh, the way that nature can ground people. That's right. We have chickens here, and we'll have people who know nothing about chickens or more city folk, and we'll um, turn the chickens out to forage and when people come. And it's amazing to see, just mm -hmm. so you get on chicken time and you're watching those chickens <laughs> do their thing, and you might think, how stupid. But they all say, it's so neat, it's so neat just to watch them. And I think it's that tie that we, we came from this, huh? We, we weren't pitched in here from outer, outer space. We come from this planet. We're the eyes of the planet. We're the ears of the planet. We're the voice. And when we separate ourselves from that, we've really, we really hurt ourselves, I think. So, and that's where, from the food standpoint, I'm kind of going on and on. But mm, not only great. not only buying wholesome foods and sourcing them from people, but um, growing your own gardens. It's amazing watching those plants come up. And we've been doing it our whole life, Sue and I, together. And even now, you know, just watching the things coming up. And this is such a harsh place to try to grow right. anything yeah. here in Ennis. It's just hostile. But watching them and looking the plants, but that's a transformation of consciousness too, is it not where you, you start to link yourself back with the source from which all things come, back to which they go here on this planet and then in this broader spiritual sense of mm -hmm. this idea that we aren't separate from anything including being as Tolly would call it or God as people call it or whatever, we, we're one we are one with that. That's the waking up part that people talk about and that people spend a long time trying to get there. Um, let me mention one experience. So I've had three trials that transformed totally the way I looked at things. The first one was the depression that we talked about. 10 years later was cancer. 10 years later, I, I left the university, I retired and moved on, and it was a transformation like you were talking about. Um, I have a friend that says, every 10 years you should repot yourself. Mm -hmm. I've been repotted every 10 years, and it totally changed the way I looked at everything. But that second one with cancer, um, when I was in the hospital, after the surgery, I had sur surgery, um, 
to resect a part of my colon and so they basically gut you you know put your guts out on the table cut out the piece put it back in and that's quite an ordeal in and of itself yeah. amazing but um it was surreal first to, to realize i've got cancer second that there's an there's a first time and last time for everything and thinking this could be it so it puts you in a totally put me in a totally different just surreal and uh then the surgery and that, and then during the day, the hustle and bustle nurses, so kind, so kind, tried to, you know, help you each day. But at night it was quiet and the Christmas tree lights were coming in. My whole world had been turned upside down, basically. I was running so fast, so fast, in fact, when the doctor told me the day before Thanksgiving that you've got cancer and we're going to have to deal with this immediately. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no way I can have surgery till at least the end of March. <laughs> it's one of those times you're just thankful that you didn't say what you were thinking because mm -hmm. you realize what a fool it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, what became clear is you're going to be in here having surgery. It's just a minute we can get you so that this doesn't spread. So all those things. So then stop, just stopped in your tracks. And... Uh, this peace came over me. This and it's I didn't realize till this last winter when I'm reading Eckhart Tolle's book and some of these other books. That's that's what the the mystical experience or the, the that enlightenment kind of thing. I didn't know that there were words for that for 22 years, mm -hmm. but when that happened to me, it was profound. It was. You don't have to wonder. That's what I, I think now. It's it's not like any piece that that ever. Ha it was just this. The and totally described it as well as I tried to describe it in nourishment when I was talking about this. This incredible peace came over me, and it was eternal kind of peace that there's never anything. My words never have caught it, and they still don't. There's never anything ever to worry about. You are one with the. You just you. He talks about this felt, felt peace. It was amazing, and it just went for months and months. And you just you were in the world, you were functioning in the world, uh, but it was just it was just incredible. And you felt that at oneness uh, with everything mm -hmm. all around you. That waking up kind of of experience. That um, you know, a lot of people spend their lives trying to get into that state. He does talk about though that a lot of times how people get there is through incredible kind of suffering. You know, it's what Sue and I were as close to divorce as we'd ever been. It just became overwhelming, and then he talks you sur you surrender at this level, and it's just there you are. That's who you're one with. It's powerful and. Reading in William James, The Variety of Religious Experience, there's a chapter in there that he builds up to on that. And he makes the point that that's independent of your religious beliefs. Yeah. That's where religion should, the metaphysical, mystical aspect should take you. But it's in, it cuts across, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jew or whatever people in all the traditions can get there and then it transcends that it, it's beyond it's beyond any religious belief it's you're one with the transcendent right
So that's really long-winded no, just on that, I, I, on that I, business. I mean, it, it is such a hard thing to get into words because it's a feeling. It's an internal experience that, you know, you can talk about up here all day long. But it, until it integrates into your being, and I, I'm not talking from my own perspective because I'm not there yet. I haven't made that. I, I don't think I've made that full transformation. But I... You know, it's like a training. I it's like training my brain to put my brain on it. But until you really integrate it and feel it, you, you can't explain it in words. No, you can't put it into words. It's just uh, it trans, and that's what they talk. It's ineffable. And when they say that, because I tried so hard in nourishment to to describe what that was, and had I known about this other literature, which I didn't, you know, I was just never exposed to that. Yeah. And, it just it's so profound it's so profoundly moving um, that you can't put it into words and like they say it's about shutting down the mind and all of that it's about you know totally spoke the power of now and and uh, books written about Nisargadatta they, they're totally about how, how do you you know how, how can you try to get there but it's definitely about they make a distinction all the time between the mind, which all the chatter that's in the mind, and that's what happened in that hospital too. All that stuff shut down. All the chatter went away. It was gone. And it's like that gets in the way. All of our thinking and doing is what gets in the way of us experiencing that. And uh, so Tolley talks a lot about different ways. And Nisargadatta and the many books written about him, they're talking over and over again about um, how, to try to, how to try to do that. And, uh, yeah, not everybody has that prompt of cancer. This sort of like forces your hand at saying, right. you know, it's, it's kind of sink or float time. And you either embrace this and make, make a change. And really believe that this is true or you keep swimming around in your thoughts yeah and um, yeah I, I have I have other I have a I have a I know other people that have had cancer and this is the work that my dad was really trying to accomplish when he was ill with cancer he was really trying to embody what you're saying here and and, and he couldn't he had many many hard things happen in his life and um, he just couldn't do it, and but he was trying really hard, and it, and I think for a lot of men, there's no roadmap, you know. I mean, everyone in general, but I think that men in particular, there is not a roadmap of how to be integrated in this world. You know, we oftentimes are conditioned to, you know, raise men a certain way, look to men for certain things. And none of them really focus on or include their humanity at the center. And I think that we're doing so much damage to ourselves and to our world when we we don't allow men to be fully human starting from very early ages. Raising a boy, I have to say, like, I think the message is getting through to my daughter that, you know, women should, can go after anything that they want and have them like because those are the social constructs that keep them limited but I don't think that the message is getting through to little for, for little boys that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to um, feel things and show them but in my son even my husband and I are both on the same page with this and we're very open to him showing all range of emotion and we're a very 
emotionally centered family, you know, I cry, my husband cries. We we model this in front of our children. We model a full range of emotions. But even my son, starting from a couple of years ago, just we don't watch TV, you know, but just from whatever he was taking in from his outside environment, he decided already that it's too scary to to cry in front of other people and it's too scary to be super vulnerable and um you know it's to me raising a son feels so compelling and hard that way because i really want that for him i want him to be able to show the world his incredible sweetness and kindness and that uh parts of himself that wouldn't hurt a fly Um, but that's just not the status quo at this point we are still really um, men are still really forced into those places where they really can't show themselves. And so I hope that that changes. I think it's changing um, for the better, but I hope that message keeps getting through that, um, like you're saying, this integration of just being a human. It doesn't matter if you're a a man or a woman, it's just being full and being human and embodying this um, experience on earth. And so. Yeah, I so agree with everything you, you said, Jess. And we do, you know, I think of, when I was growing up and stuff, there is the the macho part and the man and the way the men are, and, and you don't show emotion. And, yeah, and yeah. all of the all that I was raised around was that that way. And uh, yeah, so it takes a really. Uh, it's nice what you what you and your husband are doing. You know, to to be to to be 